Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's special episode of the Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Go to Stamps.com and enter promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer. And by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create delicious home-cooked meals. Get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for February 10th, 2016, the New Hampshire primary edition. This is a Wednesday. It's a special episode. Don't worry, GabFest listeners, we will have a regular episode for you on Friday, but we want to do a quick post-primary roundup discussion about what happened last night. So I'm David Plotz, of course, from Atlas Obscura, and I'm actually recording from the Atlas Obscura home office in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, but I am surrounded by construction. So if there's construction noise as we tape, please forgive me. Uh, I wasn't able to get to a studio because we wanted to do this show quickly. I am joined by Emily Bazelon. You're in New Haven, right, Emily? Not New Hampshire. True. How sad. We could almost fake it. But actually joining us from New Hampshire is a GabFest novice Slate staff writer, Jim Newell. Welcome to the GabFest, Jim. Where are you in New Hampshire? Hi, thanks for having me on. I am in Nashua, New Hampshire, in a hotel room. I'm one of the Last reporter still here, probably. People are taking out early morning flights, but I will hold it down. Let's start with the Democrats. Hillary had a terrible night, a terrible, terrible, terrible night. She lost every category of voter. She, of course, lost overall to Sanders by 60 to about 38, I think, were the final numbers. Um, she lost every category of voter except voters who earned more than $200,000 a year. She lost women quite badly. She was crushed among young voters. Is there any consolation she can take from last night? Is she still the inevitable candidate? (laughs) I mean, New Hampshire's electorate is more liberal and more white. And so we've always been trying in our minds to, at least I have, to kind of rope it off from the contests that are coming up in South Carolina and Nevada and then following on Super Tuesday. I have to say, listening to Hillary in her quite dogged, good, I thought, concession speech last night. I just wondered if there is some tiny part of her that just thinks, like, the hell with all of you guys. Like, good luck. Have Bernie Sanders be your candidate. I'm out of here. It's tough to be the person who keeps saying, I'm going to work the hardest. I'm going to support you young people, even if you don't support me. There's just, like, a thanklessness about her candidacy that just feels rough to me. Jim, as you've been in New Hampshire, did it feel in the days leading up to the campaign, did it feel as terrible for Hillary and as good for Sanders as it turned out to be? Yeah, I I think this is going to be the test of the Clinton campaign these next 11 days or so until Nevada. Bernie needed a win 
that was so massive that it could break down that firewall in Nevada or South Carolina. And it, it may or it may not, but he will now go into an 11-day period where you have people hammering Clinton as someone who Democrats may not even want. And if But if she can survive that, then it's true. This probably doesn't change the, the calculus at all. She'll still probably get to the nomination fairly easily. Emily, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that this is just sort of this temporary blip, this necessary thing that was going to happen? I'm always struck in, pre- in presidential campaigns by the difference between those of us who are following it really closely and for whom every bump in the road feels like a big deal, and then the rest of the normal world that kind of, you know, cues in and out. And so the the stumbles make some difference, but I don't think they necessarily shake people's basic perceptions of candidates. And I don't really see why people in South Carolina or Nevada are going to think that, you know, the judgment of people in New Hampshire fundamentally changes what they think about Hillary Clinton. I think the theory is that a lot of the rest of the country still isn't completely familiar with Bernie Sanders yet and or maybe think that he's just a gadfly who would never be able to beat Hillary in any contest. And so once you see that he beat Hillary in a contest, maybe that might introduce him to more people and also give some people the impression that he's a viable candidate. I don't necessarily think that this is going to sway the mass populace in his direction in the next however many days, but it's what he does have to do. You know, in, back in 2008, when when Obama was Obama in Clinton, you did have the sense that that even though Obama had no experience particularly, there was something about the man, there was something about his temperament that made at least people like me think, okay, he it's not just he's not just some some rookie, handsome rookie who gives a good speech, he could actually govern. Do you get the sense in New Hampshire when you when you talk to Sanders supporters that people actually sense that, oh, it's, this is not just a quixotic fantasy campaign anymore. Actually, he could govern. I think when you see him actually campaign, he is not doing the full Bernie Sanders, the full 100% screaming into the microphone all the time. He's he's a little bit more conversational with voters. He doesn't seem to enjoy listening it, but he does say, you know, I've been in Congress for 25 years. I've cut deals before. I worked with John McCain on a Veterans Affairs bill. I should say I've been to about five or six Sanders events up in New Hampshire, not, not just on this trip, but when I was here for a while earlier in January. He has not mentioned foreign policy once. And when he talks about it in the debates, it seems very thin and like he doesn't really know what he's talking about. I mean, I guess the other thing I wonder about voters increasing familiarity with him is like, so yes, now it seems viable that he can win a state contest. But if people become more familiar with him across the political spectrum, they're also going to discover that he's calling for massive government spending. And that seems out of sync with where... A lot of Americans seem to think the solutions to um, inequality and this problem of the rigged economy lie. I mean, they may be misguided about that, but I think that is a problem for him. So John Dickerson, our uh, beloved GabFest colleague who we'll talk to on with on Thursday, had a great whistle stop, which is his campaign podcast where he talks about campaigns of the past. And he had an amazing whistle stop this week about the McCain New Hampshire campaign. Actually, let me pause and parenthetically say it was such a good 
whistle stop that we're actually putting that in the GabFest feed. So if you are a regular GabFest listener and you want to hear that podcast, it's going to be in the regular GabFest feed. You should subscribe to Whistle Stop too, but you can just also listen to it as a regular GabFest episode, I think, on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. So the McCain campaign in many ways, or in some ways, resembled the Sanders campaign in that it was this, there was an inevitable anointed candidate with all the endorsements and all the money but somebody running very hard and mobilizing young voters in New Hampshire, uh, McCain was able to sort of shake up the race. But it, very quickly, McCain was squashed down in South Carolina by some very dirty tactics. What are the tactics, if you are Hillary Clinton, that you use to squash what is happening? To sort of say, forget it, this is over, let's get down to business and get the nominee we need, which is me. How do you stop Sanders? Emily. I think it's really hard because the realism arguments she has to make are not particularly winning arguments with Democratic primary voters. You know, this is the problem of campaigning on pragmatism instead of hope and change. It just has less liftoff, very little poetry, um, a kind of like soldiering on sense to it. And when Sanders doesn't stumble, then it's he doesn't make the argument for her. I think it's hard for her to be the one pointing out that everyone is having this like infatuation with a, a romance that just isn't going to work and could end very poorly for the party. I mean, that would certainly be her argument. I mean, one thing she has to avoid is the kind of missteps we saw from Madeleine Albright and Gloria Steinem last weekend, which you can't directly attribute them to Hillary, but there was this collective just gasp of rage, I think, from a lot of women who are younger than Albright and Steinem, feeling like they were being shamed into or being told that they had to support Hillary in a way that doesn't let you choose her. Nobody wants to feel like you're being forced into support out of, you know, identifying with her because she's a woman. You want to feel like excited, inspired by the fact that she would be the first female candidate. But what, so what is it, Jim? What's the more inspiring message? We'll know what her desperate way to squash Sanders is if Sanders begins to break into her firewall a little bit. I think until then she can, and I think she has begun a little bit. Obviously, New Hampshire was sort of gone for her the whole time, but she has been hitting him pretty hard, you know, pointing out the cost of some of his plans, even if her if her healthcare criticism at first was a little disingenuous, let's say. When she was saying that, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to destroy whatever health care you have now. But she she's pointed out that cost and they're hitting pretty hard the fact that he does not talk about foreign policy and doesn't seem to enjoy talking about foreign policy or isn't very curious about it. I think they're just going to keep putting those things out there for now. All right, let's move on to the Republicans. But before we do that, let's hear from our sponsor this week, our first sponsor, which is Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Driving to the post office takes so much time out of your busy day, and once you get there, you're stuck waiting in line. But there's a better way to do that with Stamps.com. Stamps.com makes it easy to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter and any package using your own computer and printer. You even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, you can save at least 50% with Stamps.com compared to a traditional postage meter. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. 
Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. So let's move on to the Republicans. Actually, before we move on to the Republicans, one quick word. I, I know that Hillary Clinton, Emily, as you said at the beginning, must be sort of like, I can't take this anymore. This is ridiculous. That woman, she is tough. She went through this in 2008, and it was agony. But she's a really hard worker. I, I just don't see her... I don't see her mentally folding in a situation where God knows I would mentally fold. Oh, I totally agree. And it's actually, to me, like the most moving, admirable quality about her is just how indefatigable she is. I think it's amazing. I would never have that kind of grit and steel. Right. Grit and steel. That's the new slogan. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the Republicans. So Donald Trump. Donald Trump. So Donald Trump wins with a pl- strong plurality, a lo- very large margin of 19%, I think 35% he ended up getting, and then a totally split field with John Kasich, a clear second, and then a close race for third with Cruz edging Bush, edging Rubio, who came in fifth, and then Christie. It clearly is is a triumphant night for Donald Trump, Emily. Who else is it a triumphant night for? John Kasich did better than expected, and that will at least get his campaign out of New Hampshire. I don't really think it's a big triumph for anyone else, though. I mean, the party has such a fight on its hands, it's going to last longer and draw a lot more blood than, you know, the establishment was hoping. The notion that it's down to a three-person race, like, no way. I mean, clearly, Jeb and Kasich go on to South Carolina. Christie could drop out. That will help Marco Rubio, since Christie has been his tormentor. And Ted Cruz, like, almost— Don't you think Christie dropping out helps Kasich? I assume that the—well, that the, it helps Kasich and Bush, that, that the Christie audience is kind of—well, maybe not. Who knows? Christie's so temperamental. I feel temperamental. like the Christie audience, small as it was, will just, like, splinter into little pieces. And then the other news, which was not really at all surprising but clear, Ted Cruz has this deep but narrow, very conservative, religious Christian support. And— he hasn't shown that it can translate out of that lane, as we've been calling them. Well, but here's here's the number that I was interested in, Jim, is that if you add up Trump and Cruz and Carson and Fiorina, you're well over 50 percent in New Hampshire, which is about as liberal a Republican state as you can get. So if, if in New Hampshire you have a kind of set of outsider candidates who are well over 50 percent, that would not embolden me if I were Marco Rubio or, or John Kasich. No, and you have to wonder if—this is something I wrote about last night. There's a lot of hope coming out of Iowa that Rubio, this was the sign that he was going to coalesce all those votes behind him now. I was at the Rubio event last night in Manchester— And there's this idea among some of his supporters I was talking to there that it's still got to be him in the so-called establishment lane, but we can also call it the traditionally electable lane in that he has crossover appeal throughout the party. That Kasich has nowhere to go. That Bush, you know, he'll go to South Carolina. He has an organization, but he still has trouble getting people to actually vote for him in large numbers. And it looks like Christie is going to drop out. So naturally, everything will still funnel to Rubio. I think the problem is, what if it doesn't funnel to any of them? You, like, you've talked about Cruz and Trump that are going to go to South Carolina, and they're going to take up, I mean, I would say easily a majority of the votes. So you have to wonder, 
it's not going to come down to a three-man race for a while. But even if it did, are, are, would anyone from that lane, would Rubio, would, would Bush be able to take out either Trump or Cruz? I, I don't know. It just looks like maybe there's going to be no person around whom the establishment unites anytime soon. Emily, what is there to say about Jeb Bush? I mean, Jeb Bush didn't, he didn't, he didn't completely fall on his face in New Hampshire. It wasn't, he didn't disgrace himself, but he got 12%, 11% of the vote in a state where he spent $36 million in TV advertising. Cruz spent, you know, less than a million. Not a very good return on investment. I mean, to me, what seems doomed about Jeb Bush is that he just has been so mocked for not being a winner that it's almost like he's internalized all of that. I mean, he said this campaign's not dead instead of this campaign is alive. I'm going to South Carolina. He just the man does not seem to have fire in his belly. It's just it's just not him. I don't think he can fake it. And his bad luck is to be the nominee in a year when There is an amazing reality TV performer who has made it his mission to destroy Jeb Bush. And also when the energy just seems to be more fired up and more looking for entertainment than Jeb Bush is ever going to deliver. You have to you have to look at how generally unpopular Jeb Bush is broadly. There's this idea that Rubio could fall and and Jeb could just eat up all that support. But Jeb. Bush has consistently some of the lowest favorability numbers, and they haven't budged anywhere in the Republican Party. And obviously, Democrats hate him, too, because his last name is Bush. Um, People can be fickle. Those favorability numbers, you know, could could flip, but they haven't yet. And I just from my interactions with people, there are certainly some people who respect Bush, but conservatives almost take it like a holy war this year to prevent Jeb Bush from winning the nomination. And they're doing a pretty good job of it. All right. Before we talk about John Kasich, let's hear from Our other sponsor this week, which is Blue Apron. You need to know how to cook. Cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering expensive takeout again. But where do you start? Blue Apron has you covered. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions. Each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store. No more sad takeout. No matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like spiced salmon with black rice, avocado, and blood orange salad right in your own kitchen. Cook with ingredients you've never used before, like watermelon radishes, farro, and purple potatoes. And recipes are between 500 to 700 calories per portion, delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash gabfest. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Let's talk quickly about every Democrat's favorite Republican, John Kasich. He is, he's not my favorite Republican. I think he's just like, he's we haven't not? spent enough time thinking about how conservative he is yet. But he's like a regular politician. He's a person who kind of believes that you can use a process to do things and that there's a negotiation and compromise and yeah i mean john boehner is that kind of politician too and they're both super anti-abortion and very conservative on economic issues you know the notion that like yes he'll play ball a little bit i mean i yeah it doesn't do that much for me which who so who's your favorite republican candidate if not him i don't have 
a favorite Republican candidate. I don't feel like I have to figure that out. I just am watching them with interest. You're, you're refusing to play my game. Anyway. True. Is he your favorite Republican candidate? Yes, it's John Kasich is my favorite Republican candidate. And why do you like him so much? Because he will not burn Washington down? It, because it appears to me that the Republican Party has gone into an extremely dangerous place, extremely dangerous, where it has become an entirely idealistic party. It no longer believes in politics as a process. It no longer believes in government, um, except you know when it believes in it to serve particular special interests. And that's unbelievably dangerous for a country. It means they're separated from the job of governing, which is a process of compromise and accepting less than ideal solutions in the hope of, of making incremental progress. And it, they become a radical party. That's a, I, this is the irony, is that I'm a basically conservative person. And by conservative, I mean like things should change in a reasonable, measured way. But like they are not conservatives. They're radicals. And that's dangerous. Okay. Fair enough. That's why John Kasich is my favorite candidate. But Jim, all right, talk about Kasich's prospects after New Hampshire. Is this just going to be his one night of glory? I think the, the issue with Kasich is he needs some infusions of cash and he needs a lot of establishment support now to come to him. But I think unlike, say, had, had Rubio come in second here, where that would have been, that would have been the end of Bush, that would have been the end of everyone else in that lane, and I think you would have seen donors and, and, and party officials flock to Rubio. I think Kasich second just sort of freezes that pool. It's just going to keep this competition going on and on and on. I think Kasich is going to go to South Carolina. He's going to campaign there. He doesn't really have any organization there. I think he is also talking about going to Michigan, which comes a little bit later. Like he's going to need something before that. But I, I think his idea would probably be in the, in the Midwest and the Northeast, in the sort of Rust Belt states where he could win there. Obviously, Ohio, since he is the popular governor of Ohio. Someone I was talking to last night, the Rubio Party, he was just saying, I thought this would resolve so many questions in the primary. Instead, it just adds questions. So the one thought I want to leave you guys with, from what I've heard from people who follow this Bloomberg balloon, he might run if it were very conservative Republican and if Sanders were the nominee. Does it feel like the Bloomberg campaign now actually is something that we should consider, that there might be real prospects of it? Or should is it, does it still remain in the land of, of deep fantasy? Well, I, I, I think we're a long way from Bernie Sanders winning. Like, it looks like the first half of that, of that theory that Bloomberg has, a very conservative or a out-of-left-field nominee, meaning Cruz or Trump, that looks much more likely to happen. I would say that looks very likely to happen. Right, Cruiser Trump. Yeah. Um, but we still don't really know if Sanders is going to, you know, get much further than this. Uh, Bloomberg, I, I, I'm not sure if he still has an idea yet about how he could win a plurality outside of maybe some, some upscale uh, suburban communities, how many people are really rushing at the gates to vote for a Michael Bloomberg. I'm rushing the gates. I refuse to entertain your Bloomberg pl fantasy plots. It continues to be outlandish and destructive. God, why? Why you guys need to indulge my fetishes? That's not our job. It's, just, it's, we've, very, we've it's very, it's very undan savage. It's very undan savage of you guys. Beyond the call of duty. All right. Our intern is El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, with help this week from Zach Dinerstein. 
Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. The GabFest is, of course, part of the Panoply network. We will have our regular show on Friday. Look for it. We'll have John, me, and Emily. We'll be doing a regular show. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Email us at GabFest at Slate.com. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. We will talk to you in a few days. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Emily. Bye. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.